But we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapters, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and we're going to talk about what God says about things like sexual immorality, and we're going to talk about the words that Paul uses there, and who he's speaking to, and why he's saying that. And there's a, there's a real danger and a fear that I have, and I know when Pastor Joe and I talk, when you talk about a topic like this, is... Um, it's just kind of relying on playing to your base. I could probably guess that, you know, 75, 80, maybe higher percentage of people is pretty conservative in the church right now. I'm super conservative, so my tendency would be just to riff about my opinions, and that's not wise. The wisest thing that we can do as people is humble ourselves before, I'm speaking to myself, before what God is trying to say through his word. What are the words that Paul used? Who's he talking to? How are we corrected? How are we encouraged by God's word? And if something that us that needs to be changed and we're offended by something, let it not be my words. Let it be God's words from his scripture. Uh, and that's just a real, real fear going through my mind right now. And I think the place that we start is that we need to understand when God speaks through his word, we're working off God's definitions. We're not in our paradigm of definitions in our head. So when God talks about love, which we're going to see in a minute here, it's going to be God's definition and not current culture's definition. And what Paul's trying to do um, throughout the New Testament and throughout this book of the Bible in particular, he's trying to encourage uh, a church that is part of a very wicked culture. And there's a lot of parallels that we can draw because, as you know, our culture is increasingly wicked. There's a twisting, there's a turning going on in our culture right now where the meanings of words are being changed rapidly. They change often. And uh, if you ever read the book 1984, that's the part of the story we're in right now in culture. We're in 1984 and we're working on groupthink, doublethink, rewriting history. So what used to mean, um, you know, the murder of innocence is now called health care. What used to mean love and tolerance is now acceptance for all God's things. And we're going to look at in this passage of scripture why it's important for the church to be different. So when we speak about these things, it's going to become really clear. We're not speaking to the world. We expect the world to act like the world. The world is broken. We're expecting the church to be the spotless bride of Christ, and that takes work. But it's pretty interesting. We're at this momentous time in history, and we can do a couple things as a church and as a people. Um, and I know I, I can tend, you know, me and my wife, we have three kids. I can think, maybe this might be the most dangerous time to be alive, or it's the most exciting time to be alive. For such a time as this, which we went over a little while ago, God has created and founded you and founded a church that's going to call on his name, that it's going to be different than what culture has to offer. I think of things like what we just saw on Friday with Roe v. Wade being struck down. Just be super clear about it. I'd never, I'm 40, I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. That 63 million plus babies have been aborted since 1973, and that's now much harder to murder a baby in America. And that's something that we should be thankful for, and we should keep pushing for. God is about the lives of the unborn. So we should be about that too. True religion is taking care of the fatherless and the widow. So... A lot of Christians put caveats on that and say, yeah, actually, well, if you're about pro-life, you should be about all life. That's a given, church. We should be about that. I grew up in a home where we took in unwed mothers all the time. You can be about everything, but you can't discount one for the other. We should be about all life. So I think God is doing miracles, and he's working through systems in, in our culture to really show hope. And to me, what just came to my mind is uh, the book of Genesis. You know, the blood from the ground cries out. I mean, I think God has had enough of his church in America and in the Western world just giving permission to things that are just very plainly sin, which we're going to see. 
And I think God is raising up a body of believers, and I think that's you and that's me. If we walk humbly with him, we submit to his word, that he's going to do something that we've never seen in culture and time and history through us, in which what I think these are our last days. That would be my opinion. So before we delve into what Scripture says, I think it's really important to understand the heart behind it. The heart behind it is love, which we're going to look at. And the reason Paul's talking to his church, he's talking to his church because he loves them. The reason God is speaking to his people because he loves them. And that's that fatherly kind of love. So the text we're going to look at right now is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. You can look on the screens. You can read in your Bible with me. It's this. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Number one, God's love is the foundation of this message. It's a holy love. In our culture, uh, we overuse that word. We overuse a lot of words. Things like awesome, things like fantastic. But we overuse the word love and take it out of its context, and we make it our own thing, and call that acceptance and then celebration. This is how God defines love in Corinthians. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or it's not rude. It does not insist in its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. One thing we need to pick out right now, because it's going to relate to what Paul is saying to us and saying to that church, is love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. That's an evil. But rejoices with the truth. Why am I referencing that? You mean, truth be told, it could be, I don't preach very often, so it just makes sense in my mind. It might not be the correct thing to do. <laughs> but I know it's Paul talking to a church in a similar culture. I know it's Paul saying, hey, uh, you need to be careful. We have to work off uh, God's definitions and not our own. Why does God get to define things like this, things like love, in our life? Because he's a starting point. He's the founder and he's the finisher. If you create something, you can define its use. God has created us. That means he can define its use. He can define our relationships. That's how it works. Another reason God can start with that point of love under his definition is that he paid a great cost for it. For you and I, he paid a great cost for us. It's really easy to not have a foundation of trust for somebody and just spit truth into someone's life and have no bearing and have it go nowhere. Trust me, I've done it. I have, uh, left to my own devices, I will win an argument and lose a war. Maybe you're like that too. That I'll think, okay, unfiltered truth, here it is, I won, drop the mic. That's foolish. God paid a great, great cost for us. He gave us his very best, his son, Jesus, who died on the cross in our place for our sins. He gets to define love. He gets to define what truth is. And if he needs to send correction, he is the foundation to do it. He knows what's best for us. After the first service, as we talked through this, uh, a wise guy came up to me, and we were just talking through, you know, what God is saying through the scripture. And he was like, yeah, it's almost like Paul is telling us, hey, listen, God has to be enough for you. 
when we talk about your identity, when we talk about sexuality, here's the main thing. Let's keep that there. God is enough. And that's what he's trying to say before it. We're starting as a point of love because the next section of scripture we go into about how to please God and what he calls us to in terms of our identity and our sexuality can be difficult to hear and difficult to process depending where you come from. Number two, we're called to please the Lord. That's, that's God's will for us. Sanctification, we're called to please the Lord in our conduct. Conduct, rather. Here's why. Because we're not earning his favor or earning his love. He's not that kind of dad. Some of you grew up without a father. I talked to a guy after first service and grew up without a dad. He was like, you know, I didn't have a starting point. So all kinds of sexual sin came at me and I had, nothing, I had nowhere to go with it. And I've been through 50, 60 years of hurt because of it. That's not who God is in your life. If you had a good dad, you'll know, hey, I have a dad who, you know, tells me the positives, tells me the negatives, can see around corners. I can't see and wants the very best for me. That's what Paul's trying to tell him there. He's coming alongside of this church like an older brother and saying, hey, please God, just like you have been doing. Uh, verses one through three say this. Finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, just keep doing it. Do so more and more. This kind of worked out practically yesterday. I was teaching my uh, oldest son how to mow the yard. And I have uh, intentionally kept a lawnmower that is difficult to use. Uh, we have a riding mower. Me and my wife rides that. The push mower is the one that he needs to learn to use because it's hard to operate. Uh, not because I'm mean, because I, it's funny to me. Number one. Uh, and number two, you need to learn how to do hard things. I want you to operate this. I want you to figure it out. And it takes grip strength to do it. You have two handles. You have to engage the blade. And it's wide. And if you don't grip it hard enough, it'll shut off right away. It has no grace to it. Uh, because you need to learn how to use it. But I found myself showing how to use it, explaining the parts. And my neighbors probably thought I was crazy because I literally walked alongside him in rows. Yeah, buddy. Okay. Yeah, actually, the blades engage. I don't know what I'm doing. You have to grip it harder. I did. You didn't actually. Let's back it up. Start it again. This part is good. This needs to be changed. Like, keep going. That's a very crude way of saying this is what Paul's trying to do to the church. Hey, I love you. I'm going to teach you how to do something. I'm going to teach you how to live. The culture you come from is exceedingly wicked. Just look it up. You read the same Bible as I read. I have no uh, secret information in this or this tablet. They come from Greek culture, full of idols out of lifestyles that are not dissimilar from the lifestyles that are in our culture now. And he's trying to say, hey, I'm trying to take you from this idol worship, from all kinds of sin, and I'm trying to teach you how to live holy, and it's possible to please God. But the big thing is this, church. You're living now in response to God's love. You're not earning his favor. My son can mess up on the yard all day, and my love meter does not go down for him. It never changes. It's 100%. He's my son. This is my daughter. This is my other son. None of their behaviors will ever draw me outside of their love. It might change uh, some of the consequences that come into their life doesn't change the love. So we live in response of everything that God has done for us. Understand that we're bought with a high price. That's difficult to grasp if you don't have a good father. A little bit more easy to grasp if you had a good father, but God's love is even perfect than the best father. It says this in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. First off, sanctification. That's very simply meaning it's making something holy and separate. All throughout the Bible, God is going to call his people holy people for his own possession. Called out of darkness and to his marvelous light. He's trying to create his own people. Why? Because he loves the world. He's going to save the world through Jesus using his church. The church has to look different, which we're going to see. 
Sanctification is that hammering process. The Holy Spirit does his work if you allow the Holy Spirit to do that work in your life. God's a gentleman. He's not going to force his will upon us. He doesn't, you know, maybe some of you are in this room and you were addicted to drugs and God saved you and the desire was gone. Maybe some of you are like me. You're like, man, I met Jesus at a young age and it's like a hammering process and I'm the nail. I have to keep giving things to God and he keeps, you know, humbling me and humbling me and it's, it's hard work. You know what I mean? The Holy Spirit empowers you to do that work. But the, the responsibility that we have is to bring it before the Lord all the time. Say, hey, God, you, you gave me this word. What's supposed to happen with it? Well, it's profitable. It's for correction. It's for encouragement. Hey, be in my word. This is what I gave you. Humble your heart before me. Submit to this. Don't submit to your feelings. That's sanctification. I think that's immensely tied with the time we spend in God's word. The more sensitive topic right here that he talks about after sanctification is that bit about abstain from sexual immorality. Because that's not a suggestion, that's a commandment he gives. And the reason he uses the word he uses is really important for us to understand. Words matter. Like I said, our culture right now will turn words right now to confuse people. Confuse people who are my age and above, but really uh, it's a mass confusion for young people, which we'll get into in a second. So when Paul uses this word, the word in Greek is pornaya. It's a Greek word that he's going to use throughout the Old Testament many, I mean New Testament rather, many times. And he does it intentionally because you and I, we want to know the rules, right? I want to know, okay, so where's the line at? Because I want to get right up close to it. Or I want to jump the line and see what happens. That's how people have been since the dawn of time. So when Paul uses this term, term pornaya, what it means specifically is any sexual act outside of the covenant of a male to female marriage. Full stop. That's what it means. It's really easy to hammer on sins you don't struggle with. And see, I told you, homosexuality. Well, it's anything under here. So it's the root word of that, you know, of pornography is pornaya. Anything. Any sexual act outside of the covenant marriage between a man and woman that God has given, Paul is telling the church, hey, abstain from that. Get away from it. Don't have a hint. This is the, it shouldn't be controversial in our age, but it is. Now, according to culture, this is very controversial, but according to the church of God, it's a shame that it has become that way. And that isn't for the good of people. Calling evil good is for the detriment of God's people. What it's saying is, hey, I want to protect you. You don't know what's around that corner. That's why I'm saying, pornaya, everything. Everything is going to hurt you. I'm super thankful for a father in my life who at a very young age made it a priority. And this is a hint for me, hint for dads in this room if you have young kids. Make it a priority to have unwanted, awkward conversations with me. All the dads in the room are like, yeah, I do the same thing too. It's awesome. Do it. The average age your son or daughter is going to be exposed to pornaya, pornography, is seven years old. Seven years old is the age. So by the time you think it's re you're ready to have a, an age-appropriate conversation about sexuality, it's too late. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Uh, it was a little bit more difficult. Then you had to get a magazine, things like that, find something. Now we have instant information on our phones, on computers, that's literally coming at kids targeted. So... Thank God my father spoke to me in love and said, hey, listen, speaking about this, pornaya, pornography, he said, hey, listen, Satan has a plan for your sexuality as a young man. Satan wants to rob you of everything. 
Here's what the Bible says. I remember him. He's a pastor, and we lived in rural Lancaster County, and he would, um, we would go, and my church was about 25 minutes away, so long drives to church and back, and he would just start asking me questions I didn't want to be asked at a 13-year-old that I probably do to my son, and he'd say, hey, you want to get married? You want to have a good relationship? You want to be with your wife? Do you want to be a father? Uh, do you want to have confidence? Well, then stay away from this, because this is going to rob you of everything. It's going to rob you of who you are. For men, it's going to rob you from the fire behind your eyes. This church has a great Renew ministry if you struggle with that, if you're not already in it. For men who struggle with pornaya, Satan wants to rob you of your legacy and your future, men and women. And so thankful that I had a godly father who showed me the way and did not lead me with fear, but led me with God's promise. And that's what Paul's trying to do with this section of scripture. He's saying, hey, listen, God has so much more for you. You can please God. He has a purpose and he has a plan for you. Keep going. Stay away from this. You don't know what you're opening up the door to. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it says this. He's going to use this same word again. He says, flee fornication, but the word is actually pornaya. Flee, pornaya, every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth pornaya sin against, sin, sinneth against his own body. Can a man light a fire inside his chest and expect to put it out? Absolutely not. When we as a church, and I'm speaking very broadly, you and I as believers, us in the Western church, when we open up the doors just a little bit to sexual sin, do you think Satan is satisfied with just a little bit? Absolutely not. There is a war on for your heart. There's a war on for your mind. There's a war on for your children because sexualization of children starts younger and younger now to your kindergarten children being indoctrinated into sexuality. Why? Because the goal is confusion. And when people are confused, they are easy to control. When people are easy to control, they are not powerful. The third thing I want to talk about here is do not reflect culture's values. Paul says here in verses 4 and 5 that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Here's the dividing line, and here's where the church has gotten it wrong. I've probably gotten it wrong in my past too, where we've spoken loudly about sin, and we've directed that talk outside of the walls of the church. That's foolish. It's foolish to look at a world that doesn't know Jesus and expect them to act like they know Jesus. And you do not operate in love. You do not operate in grace. You do not operate in truth. And you do not operate in trust. And you're not heard. You're a resounding gong to your neighbors and family who don't know Jesus when you start expecting them to act a certain way. It's just a foolish thing for us to do. And I've done it. That's Paul's distinction. Like This is later in my notes, but I think it makes sense. Because Paul is dealing with this same issue of people's sexuality throughout the whole early church. Keep in mind, wicked culture, not too different from ours. And he's telling that church this. Uh, he's speaking to the church in Corinth like he's speaking to the church in Thessaloniki. And he's saying, hey, listen, a lot of you are struggling with pornaya. In fact, in the church of Corinth, there's a guy in the church who has his father's wife. Like pagans don't even do that. Don't act like that. All kinds of different sexuality and homosexuality creeping into that culture. But Paul makes this distinction in Corinthians as well. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but see what he qualifies it as. It's not in the screens. I just added it this morning, like 7 o'clock. But it's Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. 
Do not associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. In fact, he's going to tell you to do the opposite. Nor the greedy, nor swindlers, or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, I'm talking about inside the church. Like, I'm not talking about people who act like that outside the church, because that would take you out of the world. And it's really clear we're supposed to be salt and light. Our families, our church is supposed to be salt and light in the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of the brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or adultery, reviling, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, people outside of the church? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. That's pretty serious. Like, this is Paul's words. It's not my words. But he took, and the church took, and God takes, how we control ourselves and how we present ourselves and what we do with believers so seriously that he says, if this creeps into your church, you're not to even associate with that person. One drop of leaven ruins everything. Like, don't have a hint of it among you. Why? Because it's going to ruin everything. When we operate, people think, well, what are we supposed to do? All throughout Scripture, we see examples. Hey, we have the Holy Spirit. We're, in, we're endowed with the Holy Spirit when we make a decision to follow Christ. He's our helper. He's our comforter. He's our protector. We have the fruits of the Spirit. They're love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control is something that if you have made a decision to follow Jesus, ask for it. You have the Holy Spirit. He's either going to take the temptation from you or he's going to give you enough strength to resist. He's telling them, remember who you were before Christ and whose you are now. So many times we allow feelings that we have to cloud the truth. So if a loved one we know is in sexual sin and they know Jesus, we, we tend to, to let that slide. If it's ourselves, we let those sins, you know, even more so slide within ourselves. You know, but, you know, I just feel a certain way about this. Okay, but what does God's word say? I mean, if we live feelings-based all the time, we're never going to get anything done in life. I don't feel like going to the gym. I'm not going to the gym. I don't feel like paying attention to my kids. I'm just going to retreat to the basement. All these things that we justify with our feelings, and Paul is here telling us to do the opposite. And this makes sense, at least in my mind, because this same paradigm exists right now as it did 2,000 years ago. Really wicked culture. Church trying to be separate, to be a light to that culture. How do those things work out? And we tend to think, or I tend to think, that every new thing I see out there is like the most wicked thing in the world. I'll see something online or, you know, the newest thing that happens uh, out in culture, I'll be like, this has never been this wicked now. This is the worst it has ever been. And then I'm reminded of a couple of things. <laughs> we go to Ecclesiastes 1.9 and it says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Paul is targeting, targeting his encouragement towards the people who should know better and are called according to God's purpose. He's also calling them to not have fear and do it, which is, I think, something, you know, that I certainly struggle with, too. This kind of fear of man that creeps in if we don't give too permission to everything. Let me tell you what happens to the church in America when we give permission and acceptance to everything. It dies. Go to any mainline denomination— who have accept wokeism, sin, and then celebrated, all they do is live off the endowments of people who have died. 
That church is not alive. That church is not vibrant. That vibrant. That church is stripped of its power. And that's what's coming for us. If we do not stand firm and submit to the will of God of what he's trying to say through his word. We are literally stripping the gospel of its power. Everything that Jesus came and died for was put on a cross. All the promise and the hope that he gives us is going to be stripped away because we're going to embrace really what's comfortable. You know, in the book of Proverbs, one thing that comes to my mind a lot, it says that fear of man becomes a snare. Something to hold us back. Snare is what you use to trap an animal in that time. Fear in the church should not exist to be able to call truth, truth. To be able to call right, right, and wrong, wrong. To understand God's best. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, and he's speaking to the church. Understand what you're called to. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You're not yours. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We shouldn't have expectations on the world to act like the church. We should have expectations on the church and ourselves to act like the church. I grew up in the 80s and 90s in a a very Pentecostal environment. And that was a thing of the age to have like fire and brimstone sermons where it was super easy to yell. Like a mega preacher would yell on a TV about holiness. And then you'd realize, wait, you just got in trouble for all kinds of sexual sin. Those things don't add up. Those things aren't new either. We see in our culture right now. So sick of seeing mega ministries uh, break and fall because of sexual sin. When you just accept things into that culture and call things right where they, where they become wrong. And you see what takes them down. What we end up tolerating and accepting is what we end up celebrating is what Satan uses to bring us to our knees. So why does Paul want the church to stay away? Why is he warning us? I think there's kind of three reasons for it. Number one, he loves us. God loves us. He wants to protect us. He wants to give us a legacy. When I say legacy, I don't want that to be an underused term. You know, uh, I'm a man. I've identified as so for about 40 years now. Um, But (laughs) when I I think about what God wants uh, for men, for young men, God wants to give you a legacy. That was one of the best things my dad talked to me about. So if you see this dad, thank you. One of the best things my dad could tell me. God wants to give you something really good. He wants to give you a family. He wants to give you a witness and a ministry. I can tell you, stood on stage and played music for uh, most of my life at this point. Um, What happens on a stage is very minimal to what God can do in your home. God wants to give you a legacy. Really good data shows that five generations after you, dads and moms, will follow Jesus based on your witness. Is that easy? No, much harder than what happens on a stage. Because you have to live it out humbly daily. You have to fail. You have to get up. You have to pray. You have to let God hammer your process. You have to apologize to your kids. All these things that have to happen, but the end road of that is really good. That's a legacy. One generation proclaims to the next generation the goodness and mercies of God. That's what God has to give you. He's enough. I think the second thing, the second reason that, you know, Paul's saying this and God is using Paul is that his plan to redeem the world that is broken is using his church. We're his bride. He's going to use us to be an example to the world. You know, the caveat, the other side of that coin is that if we look just like the world, who cares? That's what I think. If this has no power, maybe you're not like me. Maybe you, you would have fun gathering with people and singing some songs over the weekend, but the songs don't have power. If there's no power to change, songs don't have power. 
you know, we can gather people at anywhere, go to any bar. We can go to any restaurant, do that. Come have a fire at my house. If there's no power in what we talk about, don't waste your time. But because there is power in it, because there is change in it, because there is redemption in it, there is a hope and a future in it, this is how God is redeeming the world through his bride, the church. I think one of the things that we miss, too, is that when we over-sexualize everything in our culture right now, our sexuality becomes our identity. And any qualifier that we put before us that is not son or daughter of the living God is idolatry. We should know our history. The Bible calls us to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. Every genocide, every Holocaust movement in modern history has started with identifying and labeling the other. Know the times we're in. That is exactly what's happening right now. The victimhood status that we apply to everything that we qualify before our names. I'm not getting political. What I'm trying to do is read through the times right now and apply them to God's scripture. This is what Paul is telling us. Abstain. Stay away. Anything that qualifies you as anything but a son or daughter of the living God, reject out of hand. It's ridiculous. The last thing I want to talk about, and the band can come up, is that God's word will always abide over man's opinion. Always. Regardless of our feelings, regardless of our urges, regardless of our current situations. This is what it says in Thessalonians 6 through 8. That let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, beforehand and we solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. We're separate. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gave his Holy Spirit to you. This was, frankly, a little interesting to me. Talking about abstaining from sexual immorality, being sanctified, and then saying, hey, be careful on this. You could wrong your brother. And I'm like, well, how, how is that happening? And that one place that I think we can reference is that verse in Corinthians I talked about. In Corinthians 5.1, it says, it's actually reported that there is pornia among you, among the church, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. That's happening inside the church. That's happening inside the church of America. Maybe not a man has his father's wife. That's not like the thing of our age. But anything that involves that realm of pornia does happen. And the danger is that it's celebrated in the church, that we should have none of it there. I think that the danger is in this, is that we're afraid to not have acceptance. We're afraid to not be loved. We're afraid of offending someone with truth. Number one, if we don't do it in love, it's not going to make any sense, and it'll be offense for offense sake, and that's foolish. This is offensive enough in and of itself. But we always forget who God is in this scenario. I can have this version in my mind of uh, a Nordic Jesus who's very calm and very mild. Who's just full of love and love means acceptance of all behaviors. That is actually an unbiblical view of Jesus. That man I just described is not a man who takes a beating and dies for you. The man who does that is the man that we see in Revelation. Who comes back as a rider on a white horse with a tattoo on his leg and a sword in his hand. A righteous understanding of whose we are, how we're created, and who gets to set the parameters for our action and inaction, I think is really good to think about here. 
It's not like uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I don't think God's angry at us at all. I think God exceedingly loves us. He gave us his very best. His love for us knows no bounds. You know, when his word says that he loves us, they put a qualifier to it, that he so loved you. That no sin is too great. No sin. Think about the worst. Well, he, he knew it. He foreknew it on the cross. Think about the worst behaviors. We're talking in the context of sexuality. Think about the worst. It, Jesus redeems it. Jesus makes it new. How we sin against our brother in this is when we know a brother or sister is caught up into sin and we permit it. How much do you have to hate somebody? How much do you have to hate somebody to see around the corner and understand that only destruction comes from sexual sin? Only destruction. What we talked about earlier, Roe v. Wade being turned back, I mean, that's a direct byproduct of mostly sexual sin. Over 90% of abortions are abortions out of convenience. Abortions as contraception, which is uh, the day and age that we live in right now. You tell me those babies don't have a purpose? Tell me if you had a brother or a sister who's struggling with an unwanted pregnancy, you wouldn't welcome them into your home? If I came home from a work trip, I see my friend Jay right here, and I say, hey man, I met this girl at my work um, on a work trip. We just really got along. Um, same interests. You know I have a wife and three kids. I'm a Christian. And you'd be like, hey brother, love is love. Is that love, what, what Jay's telling me? Or is love him telling me, hey man, that's sin. And we're going to get some guys to come around you and probably beat you up a little bit and give you a come to Jesus moment. I say that jokingly, but that's what we do a lot. Inside the church with people who are followers of Christ, we give permission and we give acceptance and then we celebrate things that ultimately lead to people's destructions. That's not love. Understanding the plan that's out there that God has and understanding the plan out there to cause confusion and anxiety and separation that goes down to our youngest of children. That's starting with our five-year-olds right now, introducing them to, to Pornaya at age seven or even younger. That's a direct twisting. You're trying to, by you and me accepting these things to affect the youngest among us, we're literally destroying their future and the legacy that God wants to give us. And it ought not to be that way. Outside of God's boundaries, when it comes to sexuality, we're the ones who set the definitions. Whatever feels good, we do it. I love this person, whatever that means. I'm with this person. My gender isn't fixed. My gender is how I feel at a certain moment. Of course, confusion would exist outside of the body of Christ. Inside of the body of Christ, things ought not to be so. God is not a conf God of confusion. God is a God of order. Look throughout all of creation. He's a God of order. From beginning to end, he's a God of order. If you look at the, the book of Genesis, one man, one woman, he created them, and it was good to live together. That's God's covenant promise. God works through sin in the Old Testament to bring us Jesus to redeem us again. New Adam. Paul saying here, hey, listen, anything harmful, anything hurtful, anything sinful, anything that's going to separate you from God is going to be caught in that pornaya. Don't go outside of it. I want good for you. And I think for you and for me, God is just calling us to be bold and to be bold with love. Love is not acceptance. Love is telling the truth to one another in, in love, inside the church. Love is saying, hey, listen, no matter the cost in my life, in my marriage, in the life of my family, we're going to use God's definitions for things. We're not going to give two permissions, permission to things that are going to cause destruction in the lives of our kids, in the lives of our friends, in the lives of our family. 
God calls us not to be shackled to our current culture, but to be separate, but to be salt and light. Paul's not calling the church to be separate or be uh, Amish and completely outside and different. What he's saying is, hey, listen, you're salt. You're the flavor of the culture. You're not to be downstream and pulled by it. You are to be a city on a hill, something that's not hidden. Here's why. If you've ever been into sin, you and I all have, it leads to brokenness. And when things are broken, (laughs) they're going to need a church that looks different. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But if the church in America just looks like the culture in America or the Western world, people have nowhere to go and God's plan is not fulfilled. So thankful for a church like this where we have people and we have families committed to the word of God, raising their families the right way. I think, I don't think, but I, I believe wholeheartedly just like we talked about in the book of Esther for such a time as this, such a time as this, that's what God is calling his church right now to be. You know, what a time to be alive. In Galatians it says this, 4-7, so you are no longer a slave talking to you and I, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Maybe you're here and you're like, well, I'm actually a daughter. In Paul's context right now, he's giving you a gift. He's saying, hey, you can be a son in this instance. Why? Because a son is the heir to the kingdom, the oldest son. And that's what he's giving every single one of us. What he's also doing right here is he's taking every victimhood status that we can assign to ourselves and he's removing it. No matter if you're raised poor, rich, dad, no dad, you know, anything that has happened to you, sin that was committed against you, sin that you have committed against other people, that's done. There is no dividing line. You are now a son and you are an heir. And that's undeserved. So when we live, when we walk, when we talk, when we engage the world, when we engage the church, we engage as heirs to the kingdom. That's how we can speak the truth. I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray that it does what you set it out to do, that it never returns void, that there's hearts and minds in this room who are grappling with many of these issues. And I pray by the mighty name of Jesus that your freedom would reign now. So where there's sin and confusion, order would reign. That we have people who are bold, who are unafraid to speak the truth in love every time. In Jesus' name, amen.